session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. But we are doing a special show today, and I have two guests that are joining me, so any calls hopefully will be directed towards them, but we'll have a lively discussion about a new treatment um, for depression, which is ketamine, and we'll get into that, but first talking about the history of depression and treatments for depression, and also um, what we have learned in recent years with research. And I'm joined by two esteemed guests who will help me talk about the research and also what we know about this new treatment for depression, uh, ketamine. So I am joined by a psychiatrist, Dr. Ati Amanda Safe. She is a board-certified psychiatrist in the U.S. and Canada. She is an integrative psychiatrist that looks at the whole patient Dr. Safe not only treats the illness itself, but also her goal is to prevent future illnesses and improving the well-being of the individual to reach their ultimate level of health mentally, physically, and spiritually. Dr. Safe attended Medical College of Virginia for her residency in psychiatry and did her fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at the University of Maryland. Dr. Safe, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much, Dr. Farid, for inviting me today. And I'd like to say hi to your listeners. Yes, thank you for joining us. And also we are joined by Dr. Benjamin Taimurazi, who is a clinical instructor of surgery at the University of Illinois. He's also a fellow fellow of American of the American Headache Society, and he is triple board certified in anesthesiology, headache medicine, and pain medicine. Dr. Taimurazi, thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure, and thank you very much. And I would like also to take a moment to say hi to the audience. And I'm looking for uh, forward to a very lively discussion. Well, thank you. I'm so happy to have you both here. One of the goals of my show and shows like this is to inform the public and at times to inform the public of new treatments or new ways of getting treatment that maybe they're not uh, haven't heard of yet and also might have their own reservations about. And ketamine does fall into that category because it appears to be a breakthrough treatment for depression, but many people have not heard about it or most people have not heard about it and they have reservations about using it because they don't know that it could be used as a treatment for depression. But we're here to inform the public really about how useful this treatment can be for so many people to help them with a disease that is so debilitating and so harmful like depression. And we will get into that later. But I thought what could be a good place to start is to talk about depression itself, a bit about what it is, and then also what the standard treatments have been. So Dr. Safe, maybe you can get us started with that, talking sure. about uh, depression yeah, think, and then the standard Yeah, treatments. I think it's a good point to talk about depression because, I mean, a lot of people think that when they're sad or they're unhappy or they're going through something that's uh, troublesome, like a loss of a loved one or a divorce or mm -hmm. a, a big stress, they might feel down or upset. And that can cause, obviously, a normal reaction of sadness, which is uh, the opposite of happiness. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's a normal part of human being. And I think it's important for us to distinguish that between depression. As we know, depression in DSM-5 uh, has been, you know, establishes what it is and clinically we see I mean 
what depression is. And depression basically is it has to affect you in two areas of your life. So it could be in work and at home mm-hmm. or at school or at home, depending on your age group. <clears throat> and also it has to be uh, at a point that causes significant disability and dysfunction in your life where you actually are not enjoying things like anhedonia, we call it, that where you used to enjoy things in the past, you're not at all interested or mm-hmm. uh, invested in doing anything that you used to enjoy, which is really important to distinguish. Mm-hmm. And also significant mood uh, sadness or uh, feeling down for two consecutive weeks at least. Okay. Yeah. So for one day you being depressed or really sad or even a week is not enough. And then also it's going to affect you in different areas of your life, mm-hmm. which could be your appetite so typically you would have reduced appetite, but then we have atypical depression where you could have increased appetite. And then you have weight gain or weight loss and you have sleep disturbances. So you could be increased sleep most of the time or decreased sleep most of the time. So again, atypical would be uh, increased sleep where regular depression would be uh, less sleep. Mm-hmm. And then you would have um, hopelessness or helplessness feeling and uh, kind of a pessimistic you know, ideas about the future. Um, very withdrawn socially. So these are all like combination of these, like five of these factors have to be with this feeling of anhedonia or feeling really down. So it has to be significantly uh, affecting you right. for it to be called a major depressive disorder. Right. And that's why I think as you're uh, describing those symptoms, it gives people an idea that there's a difference. It's not the same thing, sadness and depression, but in colloquial or everyday terms, we use that. People say, oh, I was so depressed today if they were just having a sad day. Or yes. this happened and I got so depressed. Or, you know, I watched the Lakers game and they lost and I'm so depressed. <laughs> Although some people do become depressed, but that that's a, a serious issue too. But people think of sadness and depression as one thing. And right. sadness can be part of depression, but it's much more severe and is affecting many aspects of your well-being and your functioning to the point where we're talking about people can have a hard time getting out of bed. People exactly. can not, they can deteriorate their relationships or like you said, multiple areas of their life, their work. People can't go to work sometimes. Absolutely. We think that only a physical ailment will keep someone home if they're calling in sick. But we actually know what's happening a lot of times is that it's emotional or mental issues that they're dealing with that are not either being recognized or they're afraid to maybe say they have them. And it's very debilitating. And of course, ultimately, people can lose their lives, suicide and depression or something that are exactly, very much related. Doctor, yeah. So we're not, and that's what I think could be so hard sometimes when you hear about suicide where people say, how could he or how could she do that? And of course, suicide's not the only cause of depression and not everyone who uh, commits suicide has to be depressed, but we know that it can play a big part and we it's hard to be in the brain of someone who is depressed to recognize how much pain, Absolutely. how difficult it is for them to keep going. And that's why we're talking about these treatments for depression because it is so serious. So there's this clear distinction that sadness is not the same as depression. It's a very serious mental illness. Um, and so because of that, there's been many treatments, but maybe Dr. Safe, you can tell us a bit about what have been the main treatments for depression. And also we can get into what seems to be good and maybe not so good about those treatments. Sure, sure. Uh, so yeah, thank you, Dr. Freight, for um, talking about this a little bit more in detail that how much disability is involved with this illness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we know that it's actually surpassing HIV and also malaria, like by WHO uh, statistics out there. So it's quite significant. It's, it's a worldwide global You mean it's the number of people affected yes, by Yes, well, and mm-hmm. causing disability. Mm-hmm. So so it's really important to understand that it, it is a really important illness as well. 
when somebody has it, it affects them in every area Absolutely, of their life. Yeah. So in terms of what we've had, I mean, it was really in the 1950s that we started to have antidepressant come into picture. And this was actually by chance, serendipity. So people were looking at uh, finding uh, medication for TB. That was a big issue. And they noticed that when they give one of these MAO inhibitors, which is the class of drug that's uh, antidepressant, they started to notice that these patients were actually being very euphoric. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was one of the side effects that was actually written. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they were quite concerned. And they were saying that only give this medication to really, you know, stable patients. Don't give it to, like, you know, patients uh-huh. who are not stable. So it's funny that how also, like, scientists or, like, physicians, we don't look at, like, outside the box sometimes because mm-hmm. we're so fixed on, on solving that problem right. that sometimes you miss what actually could be appropriate for something else. And mm-hmm. then that's what we call repurposing. Of medication, so we had this. We have this a lot in like psychiatry, especially because a lot of our medication for bipolar are actually coming from neurology, used for like mm-hmm. seizure or mm-hmm. anticonvulsant medication. Right. Mm-hmm. So we use that for bipolar. So this was actually the same thing. This was used for TB, and then it was later used for depression. But then because it was having a lot of hepatic uh, toxicity, like liver toxicity, they actually stopped it. And then pharmaceutical went and looked at other medications. And mm-hmm. then they found other MAO inhibitors that actually works. But the problem with that right now is that it causes a lot of um, hypertensive crisis, if, especially if you mix it with certain food that have tyramine, like cheese or fermented food. And that actually can cause... Um, a crisis and actually patient can die. So mm-hmm. so as psychiatrists, we are really shy away from prescribing that sometimes because it can be a lot of risk associated with it. Mm-hmm. So we use that as augmentation at this point. And then the other class of medication, again, came about by accident. They were looking for antihistamines. And then the tricyclic antidepressant came into mm-hmm. picture. And they were really popular, again, in the 50s and 60s. And, uh, but again, they had a lot of side effects cardiotoxicity, hepatic toxicity, the overdose was very dangerous. And we know that with psychiatric patients, they have a high risk of suicide. And some of them, they use their own medication to overdose on them. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of death related to that. So again, we wanted something better and something less dangerous. And there's a lot of weight gain associated with it. It's not a clean medication. It works on different neurotransmitters. So then we came upon SSRIs. So about 30 years ago, Prozac was the miracle drug. Right. So when mm-hmm. it came to picture, I'm sure as you know, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it was like, wow, this is the drug for you know depression, and it does work, but there's like about one third of the patients that don't respond to these medications. And then over the last thirty years, Prozac just got, um, I mean, the pharmaceutical company just work on the serotonin uh, right. reuptake inhibitor, and they just use other medications like atypicals. Um, like like serotonin norepinephrine inhibitors or norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. So mm-hmm. they just kind of refined it and gave us more medications in the same category. Yeah. But again, if the medication usually doesn't work, the other classes usually does, don't work as well mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. So then the STAR-D study came about. And we said, well, what do we do with patients who are resistant to treatment? Mm-hmm. So treatment resistance, depress- uh, depression. And basically what we do, we change the medication uh, like you know, twice from the same class, and then we go to another class, and then we augment with other medications like lithium or thyroid medications, and then we hope that it works. But still, there are a lot of patients that don't respond to this. Right. And we have these patients that we don't know what to do mm-hmm. until now. And it's interesting how you, you know, when you describe that history, we can see how much, as you said, some of it is serendipitous and sometimes based on some 
discovery or for example they find that oh these uh, SSRI selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors which essentially allow for more serotonin to <clears throat> stay in the synapse which is the space between neurons the brain cells and how they communicate with one another is by what happens in these synapses um, because it seems that having more serotonin in the brain or in certain brain regions is reducing depression it led to this understanding at the time or even still is for a lot of people that depression is related to not enough neurotransmitters like serotonin or norepinephrine and so because that drug did help some people it led to this understanding that this is what depression is is essentially a deficiency of serotonin right. and this quote-unquote chemical imbalance but what we're seeing is that it's much more complicated than that. And if you just flood brains with serotonin, does it make people Absolutely. happy long term or uh, make everyone's depression go away? And so probably what, what happened was we got a little fixed in that mindset that, OK, it has to be serotonin or norepinephrine. These are the causes of depression and this is how we're going to cure it. Right. But now we're seeing that it's not the case. And if we take a closer look at the research uh, not everyone is really getting better from these medications. A lot of people are not getting better. So it tells us that depression is m more than likely much more complicated than just this chemical imbalance exactly. or this lack of serotonin that makes people depressed. And then that's the cure. And so we're seeing some movements away from that. So what are some of the issues we're seeing in the research related to how we understood depression yeah. or, you know, maybe that we're seeing that it's not exactly what we thought about this chemical yeah. imbalance theory? So it's a good point. I mean... When all these antidepressants came into picture in the 50s, we were thinking that the brain is fixed, so mm -hmm, meaning mm -hmm. that you are set with certain neurons right. at a certain age, like around 26-ish, around 30. And then after that, there's a decline in your right. neurons. I remember I in the that. 90s when I yeah. took, late 90s, I took my first psychology classes. Yeah. yeah, it was like other cells can be, you know, new ones right. repair, but brain cells, exactly. you have a fixed number once you're a baby and then you can only lose them, but you can't get more. And then... Now we're seeing that's definitely not the case. Exactly. And then neuroplasticity mm -hmm. is a new wave. And that's where we have now a lot of research emerging. Right. With uh, neuroimaging being really important mm -hmm. into understanding the areas of the brain that are involved in depression. Because we know that some areas actually reduce in volume, like the gray matter, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the hypothalamus, which is for learning and for memory. And uh, and then we know that the limbic system actually grows bigger, which is where we have a lot of anxiety and a lot of dysregulation of mood mm -hmm. taking place. So we know there is like so many changes going on. And we know that certain studies have shown that we actually can improve our gray matter, which is where the neurons are, and we can improve our neurons. Mm -hmm. But again, we're not exactly sure what. For example, I, I love talking about this meditation because I mm -hmm. mean, I, I think it's a big in our field. There's so much study has done in Harvard where just eight weeks of doing 27 minutes of meditation a day, these subjects were able to grow their gray matter and yeah. improve their neurons, which is amazing. Yeah, literally changing yeah, their brains. Yeah, exactly. Right. So mm -hmm. we know that brain is like any other part of our body by exercising it or doing things, mm -hmm. we can actually improve it. Absolutely. And I think that has brought more thinking into research and that's why we're walking away from this chemical imbalance mm -hmm. theory that once we had. And we're looking at other theories and this has opened a whole bunch of other things. Like, for example, immune system can play a part. Mm -hmm. We know that patients with COPD, uh, which, you know, is a constructive obstructive um, uh, chronic disease. Yeah, a pulmonary disease mm -hmm. where they actually have this difficulty with breathing, has actually shown that in their area of their brains, they have had changes that's related to fear of breathing mm. and also anxiety. 
So, I mean, so everything is kind of linked together. Yeah. What we kind of had this ancient medicine tell us, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's coming. The research is not showing it. So we have more proof to actually follow this lead mm-hmm. and go towards that, which I think is amazing. And then yeah. I want to tell you a little bit about why there is also more complication with these medications. Not only some people don't respond to them, it takes a long time, right. Dr. Farid, yeah. to really respond to these medications. Mm-hmm. You have a really depressed patient coming to you. And they're really having a difficult time. And you say, well, you have to wait at least two to four weeks or sometimes four to six weeks, depending on which literature you look at. Mm-hmm. But clinically, it's usually two to four weeks. But it's still long enough. Before they see benefits. Before they see benefits. Yeah, that's always the thing. I've, it's, you know, when you seeing a client who's depressed and referring them to a psychiatrist. And I obviously can't say you're going to get an antidepressant, but sometimes if they're severely depressed, that's probably what they're going to get. Or they come back and tell me, oh, they prescribed me this. And it's tough to tell them, okay, well, here's the the good news is it might help you. The bad news is you'll probably have to wait two, four, six weeks, and the side effects are going to kick in immediately. So you get the side effects when you're already feeling bad, and you don't get the benefits for a while, so it, it can be tough. And my understanding of antidepressants like SSRIs is actually one of the good things about it is also the bad thing. So it can't really be abused, and it doesn't really get so addictive, but that's also because it does act so slow and takes so long to kick in. So it's a good and a bad thing, but that makes it difficult for a lot of patients, especially if they're severely depressed and suicidal, to say, hey, take these pills, and hopefully in four weeks you'll start to feel a little bit better. Yeah, And then further, yeah, go ahead. Yes, please. If I may interject, one uh, important thing that... um, too much of a good thing really is not good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we keep talking about serotonin, and one of the reasons we are changing the dosage of these medications and taking our time, uh, increasing, decreasing, or switching from one class to the other is a condition that is called serotonin syndrome, mm-hmm. which is a very dangerous condition, which I think our uh, audience should, uh, you know, really pay attention to yeah. it and uh, make sure they take the medication as prescribed. Because sometimes they may think, okay, you know, they said it may take two weeks. Let me take one extra one. Or, you know what, it's not working. I'm going to stop completely. Anytime you change the dosage or abruptly stop taking it, uh, it, these class of medications, you will be at a risk for serotonin syndrome, which is a really dangerous condition. Mm -hmm. You may have uh, suddenly high blood pressure. You may even go into seizures, coma. It's a really bad uh, complications of uh, complication of SSRIs. Mm-hmm. So please stick with your physician's uh, yes. recommendations and don't switch drugs. Don't mm-hmm. take too much or too little. Just thinking that let me take an extra one. Maybe right. it will work faster or better. So just stick with the plan And because serotonin syndrome is something that our listeners should be aware of. Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, some. Uh, you know, we could talk about the side effects too. Um, but I think I've, I've had that with patients or clients before where they say, oh, you know, I was taking the antidepressant, it was helping, so I thought, why not take two pills a day? Or or the opposite, I'm feeling better, so I'm going to start Stop. by myself mm-hmm. cutting it or not having as much or not having it at all. And as always, you want to make sure you're under the care of your doctor, especially if it's a psychiatrist, yeah. when it comes to the medications, don't make those no, decisions on exactly. your own at all. And and compliance, actually, maybe we'll get into that, is a big issue when it comes to all medications, but Absolutely. especially psychiatric medications. It's a good point that yeah. Dr. Tamarazi brought this up. Also, discontinuation is mm-hmm. a problem. You don't, as you mentioned, Dr. Farid, you yeah. can't just abruptly stop the medication. Right. So I just wanted listeners to be aware that since we're talking about ketamine and it's really effective, but please go with your physician and make Absolutely. sure that you discuss these things and don't abruptly change your medication or stop because it can cause a lot of problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing, I want to make this point before we get into the side effects of SSRIs. Uh-huh. We, uh, Dr. Tamar, as you opened up that 
um, avenue or that area to talk about is that we're going to talk about a lot of different treatments today and we're going to say some good about hopefully good and bad about everything try to be balanced but it doesn't mean that if someone is having a treatment and it's working for them that oh, they, they should, should stop that oh, yeah, or perfect. that SSRIs are not going to help more people. They've oh, helped yes. millions of people and they can help millions more. Um, so we're just talking about different types of treatments. And with every treatment, there's risks and benefits. Absolutely. And not every person is going to respond the same to any, any treatment. Yeah, so thank you, Dr. Farrell. That's so, a great point yeah. because I think people have to know that it does. I mean, as a psychiatrist, I prescribe SSRI and it works for a lot of people. Yeah, and they're very happy with it. But mm-hmm. we're just talking about the treatment resistant right. depression. And different, yeah, different um, you know, methods of treatment. Yes. And again, not I don't think there's one treatment that's good for every exactly. single person for anything, especially something as complex. Right. as depression. But I do think it's worth noting. So again, if you're taking SSRIs and it's helping you and you're managing the side effects, it is, you know, keep keep doing that. And that's great. But we can't talk a bit about the side effects of SSRIs that people might not be aware of mm-hmm. um, that they can expect. So Dr. Safe, maybe you can share some sure. of those. Uh, so again, if we're talking about SSRIs and the common side effects, I mean, dryness of the mouth is mm-hmm. quite common that I hear from patients. Weight gain especially with women that are very concerned about all the weight gain and stuff. And um, and then also the risk of suicide. I mean, in 2000, there was a, a lot of study that came out of England that started to put a black box warning on the SSRIs mm-hmm. for the teenage and young adults up to age 25 showed increased suicidality uh, with the SSRI use. Mm-hmm. So now when we caution patients that if you start to feel worse or if you start to have more suicidal thoughts or have suicidal thoughts, then you need to stop the medication and call us. So that's quite common and you have to be, you know, uh, be careful about all that. You have, and related to the suicide, because yeah. I've heard that a lot that, and it could seem so counterintuitive for people to hear a treatment for depression mm-hmm. might make you suicidal. I know, maybe that's not for all the cases, but I know sometimes I've heard that if some people are so severely depressed, they don't even have the volition and the will to act on absolutely a, tr- a, a suicide plan. And so sometimes it's actually because they're starting to get a little bit better that they yeah. can. So that can be the case sometimes, but I think it's very not just point. that. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point, Dr. Fred Dubart. That's what a lot of advocates, I mean, devil's yeah. advocate kind of thought, said mm-hmm. that. They said, you know, when you don't have energy, you can't really think about right. a plan. You, don't, you can't really start to put in your plan to what you're going to do to hurt yeah. yourself. And you're just starting to feel better. So you get that energy because mm-hmm. energy is the first thing that's supposedly come back when you start mm-hmm. to feel better. And then they start to think about, okay, how am I going to, you know, go ahead with my suicide plan mm-hmm. per se? Um, but still, there was a lot of research that came out with adolescents that it still it could be related to yeah. SSR. So we have to be careful. I mean, sure. I still prescribe to, I, you know, I mm-hmm. see children, adolescents, and I still prescribe to them and, and still works. But you just have to be cautious and be aware of these side effects that yeah. could be possible. And the other thing is that with the SSRIs, you want to... Um, uh, I, I still like check for the um, blood work every six months because there are some people who do have some uh, coagulation problems. So mm-hmm. some, you know, has been noted some uh, platelet counts have been different with SSRIs. So you have to watch for that. And then interaction with other medications, especially yeah. in geriatric population or older, there has been problem with cardiac uh, arrhythmias <clears throat> and things like that. So you have to just be aware of all that's, uh, that's possible. And also we know that long-term effect, uh, People, you know, at some point, it doesn't work as well for them. So you mm-hmm. might even have to titrate or augment again. Mm-hmm. And then the sexual dysfunction is a huge issue yeah. for people, especially for males. About 30% have sexual uh, dysfunction mm-hmm. or sexual side effects right. with this. And it does uh, cause a lot of problems. And then we have to supplement either Viagra or something similar to the patient. And then that's another medication. Or sometimes the patient just stops using the medication and they don't even tell you 
that they have stopped because of the compliance goes up. Mm-hmm. And then, as I mentioned, there's a study that's a star D that was our guideline that shows like what you should do in order to advance. And we know that with time, if you increase the medication or change medications on patient, the, it becomes less effective on mm-hmm. the patient. So it doesn't work and the compliance rate goes down. So again, the patient gets a little bit discouraged and they're, you know, they, they lose the sense of like, you know, it's not helping me. So again, these things are really what is causing these side effects and why right. people are kind of shying away from using this mm-hmm. medication when it doesn't work for them. Right, especially if it doesn't work. And sometimes the, it's always risk-benefit if the side effects yes. are causing enough um, detriment to how the person is feeling and doing, then they, they can be an issue or you know that can make them want to discontinue. Dr. Tamar, as you brought up you know the, an issue that was important and also, and you mentioned, Dr. Safe, about this mind-body connection. And sometimes we try to separate things so much in general, in studies in general, different disciplines, but especially when it comes to medical and mental health, we try to make them two distinct things as if they're so separate when really we know that they're very interrelated and connected and the line is very blurry at times to differentiate between what is mental and what, what is medical, you know, mm-hmm. because I know, Dr. Tamaraz, you've done a lot of work with chronic pain, mm-hmm. which is in a way a physical thing when we think of physical pain, but of course has such a big impact on the individual psychologically and emotionally. And even we know that someone's psychological state can affect how much they feel pain or how they feel pain. So as much as we try to differentiate them, um, we see that actually they're not so easy to separate. And I know you've done a lot of great work with using actually ketamine, which is a treatment we're going to talk about related to depression, but for chronic pain. Could you maybe talk to the listeners a bit about that? Of course. Actually, very good point you brought up. And there is a lot of studies, and we've done our own studies on the same uh, subject matter. Uh, When you are dealing with a chronic painful disorder, there is a lot of these patients that are presenting also with some signs and symptoms of depression. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of different diseases or painful disorders that have the depression or anxiety as a comorbidity. Mm -hmm. So these two conditions suddenly are present in the same patient. Right. Uh, One of the big ones, for instance, is migraine headaches. Mm -hmm. And the other big one is fibromyalgia. Um, Almost 70% of uh, people with fibromyalgia may have depression. Uh, About 50% of patients with migraine may have depression. So is depression part of this continuum of the disorder that they are suffering from or they uh, are separate issues right. uh, still there is a lot of debate about that mm-hmm. but interestingly when patients present with either of these conditions uh, and um, if we have used for instance ketamine in their treatment uh, both of these two conditions in most patients respond to, to treatment and it is hard to differentiate is this improvement pure and simple because for instance, they don't have the diffuse body pain of fibromyalgia, and that's why they feel better and happy, and the depressive symptoms mm-hmm. are de- decreased. Uh, the headache has been treated, and now they are having much less headaches, less frequent headaches, less painful headaches, and that's why they are happy, or you actually treated both. Right. And the more we have looked into this condition and the response of patients to ketamine, it seems that there actually could be both of these two conditions uh, may may be separate and they are both responding to the treatment that mm. is delivered to the patient. As there are a lot of studies that we've, we've known a long time ago, uh, roughly about at least 30, 40 years ago, there is a, 
a very important and landmark study and then a theory that was proposed, and it is called theory, gate theory for pain. So basically, uh, just to make it a very short discussion and to describe what is gate theory for pain, um, when you have a painful stimulus, any part of your body, that uh, there are nerves all over our body. So when, for instance, you have a cut or a nail is, um, you know, in your finger, mm-hmm. you suddenly feel this excruciating pain. The pain, how do you feel it? Is the pain, the painful stimuli travel through that nerve all the way up to your spinal cord, and in the on the backside of your spinal cord, there is a an area called dorsal column. That's where all the sensory nerve fibers travel up to the brain. There are a lot of nerve connections in that tight area back in the spinal cord. And we know that certain certain nerve fibers can control transmission of pain right mm-hmm. there and then. So they can actually inhibit the travel traveling of pain, the transmission of pain up to the central nervous system to the brain. So these nerves are called basically gatekeepers. So if you stimulate the gatekeepers, you can actually interrupt transmission of pain up to the brain. And this forms the basis and the foundation of one of the very effective methods of treatment for the most excruciating painful stimu- painful conditions using a technology called neuromodulation. And that basically takes advantage of us putting some electrical like wires basically pretty much in the um, epidural space, which is on the back side of the spinal spinal cord, and we stimulate them. Once we stimulate them, then the pain transmission is interrupted. But all of this, I'm describing it, trying to get to the neuroplasticity that Dr. Saif just brought up. And we've learned so much that neuroplasticity now plays a major role in how you perceive pain and how your central nervous system is operating. So ketamine works basically on a um, the same basis, the same foundation of foundations of neuroplasticity, and how it can interrupt nerve transmission or augment ne- nerve transmission in other areas of brain, and actually can cause healing, and can cause um, a lot of different changes in the brain that we didn't know about them. But now with all the studies that we have, and there are a lot of studies ongoing. There is proof that ketamine works on the certain areas of the brain, as Dr. Safe mentioned, that would be the limbic system, uh, would be areas such as one of them is very important called amygdala. Those are areas where a lot of our um, um, uh, psychological, yeah. emotional mm-hmm. aspects of our life are controlled. Mm-hmm. So ketamine working in those areas pretty much can repair if there is a damage to those structures. Yeah, and that's, you know, I think there's research uh, that they did on 8 million patients, I believe, who took ketamine for pain, but then they saw that they had a, 80% of them, I think, had a reduction in their depression. And that's, again, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Safe mentioned some nice serendipitous findings mm-hmm. that they saw that maybe this could be a treatment for depression, that it was used for chronic pain, and Dr. Tamaraz has been doing that for several decades now, but that it also can help people with... Thanks for reminding me about my age. Oh, what's that? <laughs> oh, several decades. Well, since he was a child, he's been doing it for several decades. Um, but I just, that's also to point out the years of experience you have of doing this and how much success you've seen. <laughs> and uh, But I think you did bring up a good point of, I'm sure even you saw your, your patients 
for not that long. I'm not going to say several <laughs> decades, but you saw them feeling better physically, but also psychologically. So it was yes. probably so hard to, you know, it's so easy to see how connected they are, which makes sense. If you're in severe pain, how good could you be feeling emotionally and psychologically? How happy can you be if you're just every moment you're in pain and can't move? And again, there's such a blurred line because we think that's physical pain, but of course, our emotional pain, we also feel it physically too. Well, so actually, one more thing I should yeah. add, sorry to no, jump in, but there are some of the patients that we have treated for a variety of painful disorders that they say, Doc, my pain is not better, but please don't stop this treatment because uh, I feel yeah. so much better. My uh -huh. depression is gone or has yeah. improved. So despite that we were unsuccessful treating that painful disorder mm -hmm. that we intended ketamine for that, but that treatment actually helped the psychology of the patient. Their mood improved, and they tru truly, they asked for us not to stop this monthly or every other month infusion, mm -hmm. because that has made a complete change in yeah. their mood disorder. Yeah, that and that's, uh, you know, I think maybe it's a good time to take a commercial break, and after the break, we can talk a bit more about ketamine, also how the research with ketamine, and in general, the research in psychology has been, uh, in brain imaging, is seeing that how we understood depression is not exactly about this chemical imbalance. There's more to it than that and how ketamine might play a part in healing what might be hurting that is causing depression. I'm joined again today by anesthesiologist Dr. Benjamin Tamorazi, who has only been practicing for now. He's been practicing for many years, doing lots of great work, and also psychiatrist Dr. Ati Amanda Safe. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I am joined again today by anesthesiologist Dr. Benjamin Tamorazi, who is triple board certified in anesthesiology, headache medicine, and pain medicine. He's also a clinical instructor of surgery at the University of Illinois, and he's a fellow of the American Headache Society, um, and also joined by psychiatrist Dr. Ati Amanda Safe, uh, who is practicing both in the U.S. and Canada, but more now in the U.S., I believe. And um, she is an integrative psychiatrist, and actually she might talk a bit about that later on, about the biopsychosocial model. Uh, and we're here to talk a bit about depression treatment, but specifically about a breakthrough treatment that has actually been used for quite some time, but is getting more attention now and more research on it as a treatment for depression, and that is ketamine. And now people have maybe never heard the word ketamine, but maybe some people haven't have their associations about it. So I thought... Uh, Dr. Tamaraz, if you could, you could tell us a bit about ketamine, what it is, and also we might touch on what really it isn't, but that might give people a little bit of a background. Of course, thank you. Uh, ketamine is an, an anesthetic, a very safe anesthetic, and has been in use for a long time. I believe it was basically in a laboratory uh, discovered in like early 1960s. Soon after, in 1970, FDA approved it to be used mm -hmm. as an anesthetic. It can be administered in a variety of uh, different ways. It can be given sublingually, it can be given as a nasal spray, intramuscular, intravenous, or even rectally uh, can be administered. So depending on the route of administration, of course, the uh, rate of absorption and bioavailability, which is the most important concept in uh, pharmacology and impact of a medication, that plays a huge role. Uh, ketamine works in certain areas of the brain that basically once you are um, um, exposed to it at sufficient dose, mm -hmm. by that I mean at an, an anesthetic dose, uh, then it can create a dissociative 
type of anesthesia. So by that, I mean that the patient has kind of like an out-of-body experience, and they may be kind of awake, but they don't feel pain. Uh, you have to give them a very large dose for them to be completely out. Mm-hmm. But for our day-to-day practice in the operating rooms or in the emergency rooms, which is used very frequently even in the labor and delivery department, is maybe one of the m- most frequently used medications when uh, last minute the, a patient arrives and is ready to deliver the child. Mm-hmm. There is not enough time to give them any type of epidural anesthesia, and they're in excru- excruciating pain. Ketamine is a very safe medication that can be administered intramuscularly, works within minutes of administration, and basically gives them a really rapid, very pleasant degree of um, uh, pain relief, basically. Mm -hmm. So uh, in in emergency rooms, it's used very frequently, especially, again, in pediatrics when patients, you know, young child comes in with a fracture of an arm or leg, and again, they require some type of an intervention, uh, of course, child is screaming, you know, and you cannot even start an IV to take them to the operating room to fix the fracture. Again, we give them a small dose of intramuscular ketamine and the patient becomes very quiet and relaxed and there you go. You can do what you want to do to fix Mm -hmm. the fracture. Uh, Fast forward then um, outside the uses that we had for it in surgery and as an anesthetic, we realized that patients who had received a preoperative dose of ketamine uh, post-operatively, they experienced a significantly uh, less degree of pain for the same type of surgery. Then there was a very um, a large uh, study that was performed to compare patients who were given ketamine before that surgery and patients who did not receive ketamine for the same type of surgery. Then outcomes were very statistically significant mm-hmm. that the patients who received ketamine preoperatively required much less pain medications postoperatively. And from there, then we realized that this this can definitely be used in a variety of um, painful disorders, chronic painful disorders, mainly in conditions where there is some type of a nerve injury. This could be, for instance, a condition that is called CRPS or or, uh, complex regional pain syndrome. It used to be called RSD. Uh, which is a a very painful pain in the extremities. It can be used for patients with fibromyalgia when they have diffuse body pain, which is a disorder which uh, in these patients there is a condition called central sensitization syndrome. Basically, the brain of these patients becomes extremely uh, um, sensitive to any non-painful stimulation. That's why uh, touching the skin of these patients Mm. is perceived as painful. Outside the uses for chronic pain disorders, then we uh, started realizing it really can help depressive disorders. For depression, this is used at sub-anesthetic concentration. This is a huge distinction uh, for for the audience to to be aware of. Uh, We are not giving them a dose that will put put them to sleep. Right. Additionally, it is given over a long period of time, roughly about almost 15 minutes. Why is it done in that fashion is to uh, have this medication in the system for an extended period of time so it can exert its impact on the central nervous system. The dose is sub-anesthetic, so the patient pretty much is really awake during this infusion and can you know, uh, use their phone, can read a book and all that. Uh, and once the infusion is finished, 
uh, that very slight sedative experience they've had with ketamine rapidly disappears. Interestingly, one single intravenous dose of ketamine can work extremely fast in patients with uh, major depression or anxiety disorders. Within hours, usually within actually two to hour, two to four hours after the infusion, patient can start will start feeling the you know the imp impact on clearing all those you know depressed moods and all of that. It is one of the better medications nowadays for suicidal ideations when there is no other options. And Doctor Safe would be the one to you know take mm -hmm. it and. Uh, explain it in more details of what are our uh, options for treatment of uh, suicidal ideations. Uh, but as I, was, as I described, one single intravenous dose can have a major impact on your depressive disorder, and that may last several weeks. The best outcomes, though, we have seen that it, it is when you have a when you go through a protocol of these infusions, when your brain is exposed to this medication for a little more um, extended period of time mm -hmm. and that could be about two to three weeks with one or two infusions per week and after this um, episode or this protocol is over then the patient may require maintenance infusions once a month once every other month that at that point this should be tailored to patients needs uh, but also there are studies that show that uh, one single infusion of uh, ketamine can have almost double the potency and effectiveness of our conventional antidepressants. Uh, I have to emphasize we're not um, glorifying ketamine here. Mm -hmm. There are all these other medications that Dr. Safe has made reference to. Mm -hmm. uh, they are the cornerstone of treatment of depression. Ketamine, though, now is another tool, tool in the toolbox right. that in you know some circumstances may truly be the go-to medication but then there are other patients who may have experienced side effects with antidepressants mm -hmm. uh, or are not responding to these medications and they are suffering from treatment resistant depression so at, at this stage in the game ketamine may be a very attractive option for this subgroup of patients yeah and, and you know you, as you mentioned there's obviously we've touched on this other treatments that can be very helpful and are still helping many people, millions of people, but we're looking at a new potential treatment or treatment that can be potentially helpful for many people, and we yes. want people to be aware of that. And just to give you an idea of how um, the impact that ketamine has on the mental health community, Dr. Thomas Insel, who was the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, this is a quote from him. He said that recent data suggest that ketamine, given intravenously, might be the most important breakthrough in antidepressant treatment in decades. Uh, so that's a big deal. And this is from someone who, he was the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health. So he knows what he's talking about, or he's aware of the different treatments for depression and the potential that ketamine can have to help a, a lot of people. And so, uh, Dr. Tamarazi, I think it was very good that you explained some of that because some people might hear ketamine, and if they've heard it as an anesthetic, they, they might think, wait, they're giving me an anesthetic, and something we could touch on maybe now or even later, but about how when we hear anesthetic, maybe people think it's an opioid. It works on uh, you know the same way that other quote unquote painkillers might work, but the mechanism of action so for yes, ketamine is not completely different. Yeah. Yes, it, this is a non-opiate medication, and at dosages that routinely, even it is used at anesthetic dosages in the hospital, mm -hmm. it is truly not habit forming. 
unless you bring that same patient every day and you give them the same dose for an extended period of time, mm -hmm. then there is some risk of dependence, not addiction. Two complete, completely right. different concepts. But at sub-anesthetic concentrations with infrequent exposures, this absolutely cannot cause dependence or addiction. Mm -hmm. um, I think there is some, um, some of our dear listeners may have heard that this drug is abused also on mm -hmm. the street. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, every drug is abused on the street. You know, you, from glue to, uh, I don't know, regular pain medications to anything. You know, people, unfortunately, uh, are very creative and they're using yeah. anything and everything to uh, get a different feeling from mm -hmm. from it but uh, but again at the dosages that are used for this purpose this will not cause any uh, dependence withdrawal and it's not an opiate it works completely differently on certain areas of the brain and it, and neurotransmitters the main uh, neurotransmitter that is involved in this process and the receptors are glut glutamate and NMDA receptors which is one of the most prevalent neurotransmitters in the brain and and the receptors mm -hmm. as such. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good to explain that because I think a lot of people might hear anesthetic and they think, oh, so it's an opioid. And of course, we've heard so much in the news about the opioid crisis and what's been happening in America and across the world with people abusing painkillers, opioids, and um, leading to even death, unfortunately. But it's important to make that distinction that ketamine is not an opioid or does not act yeah. on the opioid receptors because that's a different mechanism of action and also makes it less likely to be a drug of abuse or a drug that people can get addicted to. Is there some potential? Yes, but that risk appears to be very low, especially at the doses that people are being given in yeah. the treatment of depression. Another factor, Dr. Farid and Dr. Taimurazi was talking about is that street drugs are a lot of times are laced with other drugs. Mm -hmm. So they could be laced with cocaine or PCP or other things that we are not sure. It's not pure form. It's not mm -hmm. coming from a, right. you know, a reliable place. And another thing is that they're taking really high doses in these uh, street drugs. Mm -hmm. So uh, we know that in our field, like benzodiazepine is a street drug. It can be used. Yeah. Uh, amphetamines, which is used for ADHD. Even Seroquel, which is antipsychotic medication. I know it has street values. So, and again, these are usually mixed with other drugs mm -hmm. and they're lysed and also they're using really high, high doses. Right. So with like anything that you take in high doses, you're going to have more problems and addiction. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, very, very small dose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, cough syrup can be used. Yeah, as, exactly. You know, people, so there's really, we have to be aware of that, that just because some drug is used or abused, we can say, or used as a party drug or on the street, it doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't have potential medical or psychological benefits that are very real and not dangerous yeah. and that we should be aware exactly. of that. And so I think that's a very big distinction. And, and as Dr. Tamarazi said, ketamine in general seems to be a drug or a anesthetic that doctors feel very confident and comfortable with and they're not very worried about. But especially the doses we're talking about in the treatment of depression are even much less than that as well. Um, I think something in the neighborhood of maybe 10% at times. Yes, it's 10 of, times or more, uh, 10 times or less than right. what it is used yeah. in, in like a hospital setting for anesthesia. Yeah, and I, I was actually even seeing a psychiatrist that he was talking to other anesthesiologists and he said the dosages they were talking about was something that they were not even concerned about. As It was so low right. compared to what they're using um, as an anesthetic that they were saying it's it's really almost like 
it's so different. I think it's almost yeah. not the same thing. And yeah, during so, the infusion, the patient is fully awake and aware of what's going on. Right. So they're not at all, you know, yeah. at a point where they're not aware of what's going on around them. Yeah. They're conscious. And I think what'll be good is uh, a bit later, we can talk about the process because people hearing this might think, mm -hmm. okay, ketamine treatment for depression. And I think it's always nice for people to have an idea of what to expect mm -hmm. if they go forward with yes. some type of treatment Definitely. because there's usually lots of questions yeah. and things they might worry about and fears. And so we'll get a bit about that. And actually, I, I do want to mention that um, Dr. Tamarazi and Dr. Saif are part of a clinic that is doing IV treatment, ketamine treatment for depression called Halcyon. And I will give the number to the listeners. If you are in the Los Angeles area, um, the office is in Beverly Hills, so you could receive the treatment or if you can come here. But that number is 800 301 Eight three three nine. That's eight hundred three zero one eight three three nine. And um, you can actually call now if you'd like. I hope you'll continue listening to us. But if you really do want to call now, please go right ahead. And maybe this will be a good time to talk about uh, ketamine as a treatment, but also what the fact that it's helping is telling us about what depression might be yeah. about the brain in general. And Dr. Safe, maybe you can start us well, off yeah, with just that. Let me go on the point that you made about the NIMH previous yeah. director. I think mm -hmm. it's a great code. And I want to make sure what people that are not in this field know what a NIMH yeah. is. Mm -hmm. It's actually a government institution that works on mental health research. So it's not funded by pharmaceutical companies right, and mm -hmm. uh, they're non-biased. So I just want to make sure you guys are aware that it's really important that this previous director is talking about this being a new breakthrough. Mm -hmm. And it is a new breakthrough. I mean, after 30 years, we're looking at glutamate being a new neurotransmitter that's actually uh, might be helping because we know that the brain is actually the main neurotransmitter that's excitatory. It's actually um, glutamate. And the glutamate has this NMDA receptor that we were talking about, and it's actually linked to Alzheimer's too. Mm. So um, we were just talking, you know, with uh, Dr. Temurazi the other day, and it's exciting field because people are now going to look at other neurodegenerative di mm -hmm. diseases that could be related to this neurotransmitter, such yeah. as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, and autism. You know, we see a lot of autism that we, we just can't explain what's causing it. So a lot of new research will come into play. And I think this is truly a breakthrough into what, I mean, we are seeing after 30 years. Yeah. It's really it, exciting times. It is very exciting. Yeah. And that's, you know, our understanding of mental illness in general, it, still there's a long way for us to go. We yes. thought we would be able to really just understand how the brain works completely right with the new imaging techniques, and they've helped a lot. And of Absolutely. course, we're continuing to learn more, but we're seeing that some of the things we thought we knew about mental illness might not be true, or at least might not be the whole story. And so yeah. we've touched on this, that this idea that there's a chemical imbalance that causes depression or that depression is caused by not enough serotonin or another neurotransmitter, norepinephrine, it might be part of the story, but it definitely doesn't seem to be the whole story. And what ketamine is, sh is showing us and how it works and helps patients is that what it might be more about depression is the lack of connectivity in the brain that is leading to the depression that might be caused by the stress yeah. and caused by what people go through. But it's more about connection between brain regions and neurons individually more than it is about one neurotransmitter. Exactly. It's more like a reduction and also synapses and also uh -huh. the pathways that how they communicate to each other. Right. So if your pathways are kind of disconnected, you can't really transmit these neuro mm -hmm. transmitters to do what they have to do and excite the next neuron. So the connectivity can be repaired. And that's mm -hmm. what we're seeing with ketamine, that there is some research that indicates that actually not only it repairs, but it protects. And I want to talk mm -hmm. about the study that was done in Colombia on mice. And they looked at 
PTSD, we know that post-traumatic stress disorder is another disorder mm -hmm. that's very common now because of the trauma-related um, injuries. And what they noticed is that in the rats that they gave one small injection of ketamine, they were protected of stress for the next 10 days. Mm -hmm. So they were they were exposed again to the same stress, but they did not show the same reaction. Usually when a mouse is stressed, like human being, they withdraw or they have this helplessness kind of a situation and they hide. Mm -hmm. But what they noticed is that this uh, mouse that was injected with the ketamine, after the stress, they were not affected. They were still continuing to socialize and uh, be happy and move around mm -hmm. as if they weren't stressed. So, I mean, these are all really important part of the puzzle we're coming into picture of how this is working. And so yeah. not only we are looking at treating, we might be preventing. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we are seeing a lot of avenues to explore when it comes to drugs like ketamine. And to me, this issue of connectivity is so important because I think before I would hear a lot more about, okay, different illnesses or different functions in the brain. It's about one region or one neurotransmitter. We thought it was just very specific. But now more and more research, whether it's about mental illness or about different capacities that we have as humans, it seems to be less about individual brain regions and more about communication and connectivity between regions that they have to fire at the right rate yes. together. There needs to be communication between one brain region and the other rather than just one brain region alone. Absolutely. And it's interesting. It's like kind of this even more holistic view of the brain yeah. rather than just these individualized parts. Right. And so what ketamine seems to be doing is affecting that, affecting yeah. the brain's connectivity you can maybe use an analogy of it's like you have all these bridges and roads but a lot of them are broken down broken when you're down. depressed and so yes. you can't use them anymore exactly. but what a drug like ketamine seems to be doing is to repair those bridges right. and those roads so that now you can have lots of different ways to connect and communicate exactly. and that connection and communication leads to people feeling better and doing therapy afterwards because yes. you, as you know i mean you're in this field dr mm -hmm. Freud, you know that when a patient is severely depressed they don't have the energy to come to therapy yeah. or mm -hmm. engage in therapy mm -hmm. And I'm sure you've seen that with your own Absolutely, patients. Yeah. Right. So what is promising about this is that once they actually get better, there's some healing or some, you know, feeling better, they start to do things. They start mm -hmm. to go to their therapy. They start to actually work in therapy and they start to be more, you know, uh, more repair in their brain because we mm -hmm. do know that therapy actually does make changes in the brain right. thanks to neuroimaging. Mm -hmm. so, um, so it's not just one way to do this, yeah. but this is just like you can help the patient to get started. Right. And I was looking at some of the research that there's some some uh, research that might suggest that stress and depression, they can lead to neuron death even, or yes. at least the communication and this inflexibility. You know, we get fixed. And we think about that. When we think of someone who has depression or anxiety, they're very fixed in the way that they're thinking and feeling. And it reminds you of almost like a physical body that if you're under stress, we kind of retract and we kind of hold ourselves right. back and we don't do as many things and we don't use our whole body even in all the ways we can. And so similarly, it seems that the brain responds in this way that if it's under stress, it kind of just does a little bit less and there's less of this ability to Absolutely. be flexible and do different things. And so we want to try to expand that and get that flexibility back, that communication and connection back. Right. And it's very hard for people to take the steps that might help them themselves. And right. they can often need some kind of a boost or a jolt right. to help boost them into going in the right direction. And exactly. so ketamine seems to have this effect, which is really interesting because right. if we can get the brain to communicate and connect in the healthy ways that it can, we know that this can have significant effects in how they live their lives. And like you said, then if they're in therapy, it can really help that and augment the therapy work that they can do. 
Um, and that's something that I know at the clinic you guys are looking into as well. And also medication, Dr. Farid. We know that it works better after ketamine for maintenance. I mean, there have been studies yes. that shows that actually medication that wasn't working for patients in the past, after ketamine treatment, they actually can respond better to the medication. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's that's really interesting. Um, you know, you know Dr. Dr. Yes, Dr. Farid, please, what please. you brought up, I think it, if we may discuss a little more in detail, um, and it's really dear to my heart, this area of, I really like neurophysiology, neuropathology, but what you mentioned in regards to how stress impacts the central nervous system, mm -hmm. it's the centerpiece or like the, the hallmark of what eventually starts the cascade of events uh, and results, for instance, in uh, degenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's disease or now we know that depression even has some neurodegenerative mm -hmm. pathophysiology behind it. And what ketamine does, which is an extreme, it's a very beautiful, unbelievable mechanism of action. Uh, and I, I'm sure there are some um, um, like psychiatrists or even uh, people that are in healthcare, hopefully listening. So that's why I will go a little more technical in this. Uh, just for a few seconds, we know now we know that there is a system within the brain that is called purinergic system, and these mm -hmm. uh, there are specific rece receptors uh, related to the purinergic system. And ketamine, interestingly, either blocks some of them, which are the bad ones, and or stimulates the ones that are the good ones. So there is an A1R receptor, which is the good one, which ketamine stimulates that, and then there is an A2AR receptor, which ketamine blocks that. And once this like event occurs, then there's less inflammation in the brain, basically. Mm. And when there's less inflammation, that's when healing can occur. Mm -hmm. How it happens is it creates a balance between two other compounds. One is called adenosine and the other one is called ATP. When you have too much ATP, that's an inflammatory mm -hmm. uh, type of a material within the brain. If you have adenosine, that is neuroprotective. So ketamine by blocking receptors or uh, stimulating the other receptors creates a balance and increases the adenosine level, which is neuroprotective. Once you have neuroprotection, then there is less inflammatory process in the brain, which inflammation damages the nerves. And this happens so fast. that That's the beauty of mm -hmm. all of this. Within hours right. of exposure to ketamine, the receptors are starting to react, and then the transmission of glutamate starts to change. And ultimately, that NMDA pathway is impacted. So that yeah. NMDA theory, it is true that it, it happens and ketamine is a, a non-competitive blocker of NMDA receptors. But what happens upstream is what actually is the beautiful mechanism of action of ketamine. And that's why it works so fast mm -hmm. and uh, repairs the neurocircuits. There is more dendritic connections, which is required for release of neurotransmitters, reuptake of neurotransmitters, and how the neurons can talk to each other. So it recreates that synchronized firing of the uh, proximal nerve to the distal nerve that basically creates is the cause of neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot that happens behind the scene, but we see it works so fast and that is why it works so fast right yeah that's interesting we're understanding the mechanisms of action or how it's helping people uh and that is one of the big pluses about ketamine is that it can act so fast especially when we're talking about people who are severely depressed which we talked about how debilitating it could be mm -hmm. but even 
people can be suicidal. And so yes. uh, that's obviously very dangerous. And we, we lose many people. I think it's something like 40-something thousand yeah. a year in the United States. Just uh, 800,000 globally. Yeah. So it's it's this is really, again, why we're saying that uh, looking at treatment of depression is so important. We're not just talking about sadness. We're talking about a debilitating disorder that is hurting many people, hurting many relationships, and even taking lives. And so it's so important for us to explore new ways of treating individuals. And ketamine seems to be a very promising one that is showing great results. And it, it does seem to work very quickly. So maybe we could talk a bit about what, um, how people are benefiting. So what changes we see in individuals, both at a, in the brain level, we talked about some of those, but is it just a lifting of the mood? Are we seeing people more energized? I don't know if you guys have any, uh, you know, could talk on that in any way about what we're seeing is changing in the patients who are receiving the treatment. So I will just say a few words about my experience, mm -hmm. but I think Dr. Saif is the right person to give you, you know, more technical answer. But I see the change so rapidly that before the patient is discharged, uh, despite that they are a little kind of relaxed and you can see a sparkle in the eyes, and I'm not mm. saying it just to, because I like this drug, you know, <laughs> yeah. and how it works and how what has brought to 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 for how we can treat different conditions, but we see the impact really fast, and we see that in their eyes. We then we hear it from whoever came with them and took them back home, that even on the way this person, this patient was like more talkative. They were mm. like interested in events, in, in engaging in a, in a dialogue while on the way to the clinic, they were so quiet and removed from, from that discussion. Mm -hmm. So that is what we see so quickly that occurs. Uh, but I, I have to Thank defer you. to Dr. Safe to, to give us the technical right. you know, aspects I mean of it. Thank you. Well, it's very similar. I mean, I mean, as you do the infusion, you see a lot of patients respond within an hour to one day. Mm -hmm. So it's quite significant that the timeline is really short. I mean, mm -hmm. you get to respond immediate, which is really promising for the patient and yeah. for the physician. Absolutely, and, yeah. and Especially in our field, we hardly see that. We used to always wait and let's see, and it would take weeks, sometimes months, before you see improvement in your patient. Mm -hmm. So... Um, but as uh, Dr. Temur, as you see immediate effect, right, in your field. So that's why there's a there's a link now bridge between our professions, which is really nice because we're seeing that mm -hmm. immediate result. And what has studies also show right across all the important centers that have done this, these patients are reporting less pessimistic uh, uh, way of looking at life, mm -hmm. which is really common. Even with the SSRIs that work on patients, you usually see energy being the first one, mm -hmm. you know, or uh, the sleep or the appetite regulating. Mm -hmm. This one, it goes right at the heart of the matter, yeah. you know, which you see the patients get up and they start to go through their mails. Mm -hmm. They start to clean up their house. They put more of their efforts into work and action. And they're more organized. Their thinking is more, uh, co their concentration, they reported being really good, mm -hmm. which is really common in, you know, we call it pseudo-dementia with depression. Mm -hmm. Right where they start to be more forgetful, lack of concentration. They can't even read a book, and they always want want to be treated for ADHD. And I said, no, ADHD is mm -hmm. not like that. Yeah, it doesn't just come about like in your forties or fifties. 
But um, but it does feel that way. They cannot do things or watch a movie even. They used to enjoy movies and now they mm -hmm. can't even uh, sit down and watch a whole movie. So it's nice to see that patients start to actually enjoy things again. Right. You know, and yeah. that's what is most commonly seen, that people start to see that. And again, the suicidality goes away. They don't have that suicidal addiction, which is really important. Which can be literally life-saving. Yes. Uh, but also what you mentioned about the change in the pessimism and just some of that energy. And... Uh, a lot of times people will talk about depression as a downward spiral because unfortunately when you start to get depressed, all the things that you can and should do that would help you become harder to do. And so, for example, a patient starts to get depressed and one of the symptoms is withdrawal. So they're with people less. Yes. And so that's going to make them feel worse when we know they need to socialize more. Then they're less active, which we know also contributes right. to feeling down. And so now they're in bed all day and you say, okay, it's good if you exercise, but they can't even get themselves out exactly. of bed. And they don't want to see anyone. And they don't want to, you know, they stop working and they feel yes. worse about that. And then, yes. so it's really this really painful and nor horrible spiral. negative spiral that yes. can start to take impact that can be hard to stop that momentum yes. because all the things you want them to do that can right. help them, even let's go for a walk, they feel like they can't even get out of bed. Exactly. And so if there's anything that can give them kind of a jolt and ketamine seems to be doing that, then it's not that we're saying any kind of treatment like SSRIs or ketamine is the cure for depression. But what could it do is it could really help people alleviate a lot of the very heavy symptoms that might allow them to now help themselves. The negative feelings. Yeah, exactly. even even with SSRIs, when patients sometimes would say, well, is this supposed to fix my depression? And I would say, no, but what depression could be like is you're really deep in this dark well right? and you need to climb out, but you're too too far down right now to get yourself out. But the medication might help bring you up a bit and then you'll be able to climb the rest of the way out. Exactly. And so when we talk about even ketamine, we're not saying just take this infusion and now you're happy for the rest of your life and no. you don't have to do anything. But we're saying that when you're severely depressed to the point where even the medications are not helping and therapy really is not yeah. doing enough, maybe this could be something that jolts you out of that really low yeah. place. And then with the other work you're going to do, now you can live a much happier life or be much healthier mentally. Exactly. And Dr. Fred, that comes into where I have my main area of interest, mm -hmm. what I practice and mm -hmm. what I preach. You have to have a balance in everything you do. So as you said, it's, it's, I mean, you can't just rely on one drug or one right. thing and say, I'm going to get better. You have to do once you get out of that hole mm -hmm. or that feeling that's paralyzing and you start to do things and you put yourself into action, then you start to live a healthy life. And that includes eating well, exercising, mm -hmm. everything that we know that actually science has shown that it changes your uh, neurons, your mm -hmm. gray matter improves. I mean, learning, we know that learning a new instrument, the music, improves significantly, uh, you know, in terms of your brain's uh, regions and the, the mm -hmm. neurons you develop. We know that juggling, I mean, people would laugh, mm -hmm. but because that's eye-hand motion coordination, it, it helps you. You don't have to be good at juggling, but just mm -hmm. attempting to do that, you can actually exercise your brain. Learning a new language, doing things that you usually do with your dominant hand, switch it over to non-dominant. I mean, all these things are have shown to improve our health. But again, ketamine kind of helps you to get out of that kind of a place where you're just stuck, you mm -hmm. know, and, and nothing seems to work and you don't want to do anything. Yeah. And then it gets a move on and then you have to find a balance in your life and mm -hmm. do things that has caused you to get to this level. Right. And again, we get, we get to this model of biopsychosocial. I want to understand people that depression or mental health is it involves uh, three things, you know, or three kind of models. We call it the biological, psychological, and the uh, you social. know the social mm -hmm. part of it. And the biological, as you know, is the genetic. You know, what we're born with our genes. You know, do we have predisposition to mental health illnesses, just like cardiovascular people who have cholesterol, high cholesterol, or diabetes. 
they have the genes, but if you have a good lifestyle, you can either suppress it or you could manage it. And and again, it's the same thing with mental health. Mm-hmm. You know, stress we know is a big component. So so you know, it used to be that I used to think, okay, I tell my patients just you know, I, I used to tell them, okay, monitor your stress. But mm-hmm. then again, in this society, it's so hard to do yeah, that. Like right. everything we do is stressful, right? Mm-hmm. The lifestyle we have and in a busy cities or or the way we are. So now this ketamine, I think, has shed this light that we can maybe get this road going and then we can go into this. And then again, going back to the model that I was telling you about, the the cycle part is like, how's your temperament? Are you an easy person, easygoing person? Are you laid back or are you really a perfectionist, obsessive type? These are a really important part of how you deal with stress because mm-hmm. it's, it's everywhere. I mean, driving or, you know... Uh, coming to your radio show, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, things like that. But I'm saying it's just like it's everywhere. You can't, sure. you know, and, and and it's just I think it's important for us to know that we, we can't avoid it. We are living in a society that it is stress bound. Right. But how do you manage that? And again, exercising or how you, you know, eat or uh, meditation or having good circle of friends or good social mm-hmm. support. They're all important. And then psychosocial, you know, do you have access? Are you financially able to manage this? Are you do you have a good family support? Uh, these are all important. So there's a combination of things, as you know, right. that plays a part. Sure, right. It's the interaction of all of these different aspects of our lives, of our from the physical, the mental, the social, that are all going to overall produce our state of well-being. Yes. And well-being even is a more general term, which might even be better than just saying medical or mental, because it's overall, and we've talked about how it's hard to differentiate them, because they are so related. And also, uh, you know, I do want to mention, we probably will go to another break in a minute, that we're today talking a lot about ketamine as this this new, although it's not so new, but new to many people as a treatment for depression because they haven't heard about it. But there are, of course, the SSRIs that, or the classic medications we've talked about. And there's also other alternative treatments. And I say alternative because they're not always the first line. Things like electroconvulsive therapy right. that can be very helpful for people who are treatment resistant yes. and very suicidal, for example, might benefit from that. Or transcranial magnetic stimulation, right. TMS which can be helpful. Uh, so we want people to be aware that there isn't just one treatment, as I mentioned before, but not only that, there are alternative treatments that you might not have heard of that actually can be helpful. Absolutely. And so ketamine, we're saying, is another one of those that seems to have a, a lot of benefits for a lot of people. There's a lot of research, and you've touched on different areas of, uh, that have had, you know, Yale has done research, Columbia has done research. I want people to Harvard, know that yeah. Harvard, it's not just something John that Hopkins. it's uh, on the fringes that yeah. a few people are saying, we like this and we think it's a good idea. There's real heavy research that's supporting ketamine as a treatment for depression. And Dr. Fred, before you go to commercial, I think you, yeah. you touched on something that I think is important for listeners to know, that they're saying, how come we haven't heard about it right. if there's been so many studies? Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. because, um, as Dr. Temur, as he said, this a drug has been around, FDA approved it in the 1970s. Uh-huh. And a drug has its patent for about 20 years, as you guys know. So once they lose that patent, then it becomes generic form. And there's not much benefit from the, to the company to market it any longer because it's available and it's much cheaper. So this is what has happened to ketamine at this point. Mm-hmm. And ketamine, since it's been along for a long time, there's not much benefit for them to market it or advertise it. We know that there goes about... $30 billion every year into uh, marketing medications, pharmaceutical wow. companies do. Mm-hmm. And that's advertisements or just talking to doctors, educating them. And with ketamine, this hasn't been happening because of this. Now there's a new form of this drug that's n- it's a different kind. It's actually esketamine. Mm-hmm. And it's a nasal spray that's been FDA approved recently. 
But again, as uh, Dr. Tamworthy said, it's not the bioavailability of it is not similar to this medication that we we have yeah. talked about. Right. But it's still there are different, you know, uh, formulations of this medication also mm -hmm. available. I just want our no, listeners to be aware. Yeah, I think that's a good point. That unfortunately, the pharmaceutical business. I know it's very easy to say, uh, be mad at big pharma here in the United States, but there is really uh, issues at play that can affect what treatments or what types of drugs become researched and get support because of the amount of money they can make. I think I've heard even from you guys talking on Friday that it takes about a billion dollars to get a drug to market, you know, yes. to actually be able to be sold. Right. So right. obviously they have to see the potential for huge profits to put all that money into it, which right. um, we could do a whole show on just how the pharmaceutical industry maybe needs to change and FDA needs to change to, you know, help people even more. But uh, you brought up a good point that there's reasons why we sometimes don't hear about yeah. a treatment, even if it can be helpful. And the fact that you haven't heard about it doesn't necessarily mean it's not helpful, right. but there are a lot of factors at play. So I think we'll go to another commercial break, which will be our last one for the show. And then after the break, we can get into more detail about how people can get treatment and what treatment would look like if they were to get a ketamine treatment, who is a good candidate and who is not, and uh, how people can um, get involved in that way. And so if you are in the Los Angeles area, Dr. Tamarazi and Dr. Saif are uh, involved with a clinic called Halcyon in Beverly Hills, and the number for that clinic is 800-301-8339. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm joined again today by Dr. Benjamin Tamorazi, who is a triple board certified doctor in anesthesiology, headache medicine, and pain medicine, and psychiatrist, Dr. Ati Amanda Safe. And we're talking about the treatment of depression using ketamine. And I want to give you guys that number again for their clinic, Halcyon, which is 800-301-8339. And I thought in this last segment, we can give people an idea of what it's like if they want to get treatment right. using ketamine for depression, because I'm sure people have lots of questions. They want to know what to expect. Maybe they're feeling a little bit nervous about getting involved with the whole process. So I thought it could be good, as always is the case, to kind of demystify it a little bit, not make people so sure. uh, worried about what to expect. So maybe, Dr. Safe, you can start us with that and what people need to know about who's even a candidate or who can right. get this treatment and what the process is That's like. That's a good point. So so first of all, this is for treatment-resistant depression. Mm -hmm. At this point, this is what people are using it for. I mean, maybe in the future it will change, but at this point, this is what we're looking at. It also has been shown to work for unipolar depression or mm -hmm. depressive state in bipolar. So these are the population that would be at this point mm -hmm. eligible to call in or get more information. So when, when they call in or they, they could either be referred by their therapist, psychiatrist, and they could call the center and then they could be assessed by me as a psychiatrist to make sure that everything's okay, they're medically cleared, mm -hmm. um, they are treatment-resistant you know, depre depression, and they also have been tried on medication before. Mm -hmm. And they could still be on medication right now and yet they don't have the full effect. They still suffer from depression. So most of their symptoms are still active. So that's still okay. So there's no interaction with the medication, most of them, which is important to know. Also with bipolar patients, you do not want to stop your medication. But if you're still in, you know, with bipolar is a little bit tricky. They could be still experiencing depressive symptoms. And again, ketamine could be 
uh, treatment mm-hmm. for them. So what happens is I do the assessment, and if they're eligible for this, there's no contraindications, no seizure, or uh, they're not psychotic, uh, or other things that might be uh, important. And we want to make sure they're medically cleared, mm-hmm. and uh, we do have some baseline blood work from them. And then at that point, they could be qualified with the ketamine, and I'll just pass it to Dr. Tamer as we talk about sure. that process. About sure. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there are some uh, rather absolute contraindications, and one obviously would be if a patient is allergic to this medication, right. mm-hmm. and of course you don't want to use that. But uh, other uh, contraindications would be, of course, one is pregnancy. It cannot be used during pregnancy, mm. not because it's... Um, bad for the mother or for the baby, but it can cause uterine contractions, which oh. may cause premature, you know, uh, labor. Uh-huh. So that for that purpose, it's not used during pregnancy. Uh, additionally, people who have uncontrolled hypertension, which means, you know, their blood pressure is all over the place, and they one day is 180 over 100, the, the next day is 120 over 60. So uncontrolled hypertension would be a contraindication almost a relative contraindication. As long as the blood pressure is not controlled, it's better not to get this infusion. Mm-hmm. Then there are some other forms of eye problems, such as glaucoma, because this medication may increase the pressure in the eye. So if you have glaucoma, again, if it is controlled, you're fine. If it is not controlled, uh, it would not be a good idea to go through the infusion. Uh, ultimately, there is some patients who may have brain tumors, which uh, unfortunately is a bad problem to have, but Mm -hmm. uh, uh, ketamine may actually increase the pressure in in the brain within the, like, skull, and that is not a good idea to be exposed to ketamine in that situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Other conditions, such as if you have diabetes, if you have hypertension, if you have liver disease, if all of them are well controlled, if your primary care physician especially uh, has given given us the blessing, and of course we will do our own assessment for a, a, any patient to make sure we have looked at all the indications and contraindications, and if we think the patient may need some more workup, mm-hmm. of course we have to do that to be able to deliver the medication safely. Uh, ultimately, when a patient is considered a candidate, then uh, there are special instructions that we uh, provide for the patient to uh, before they come to for their procedure uh, one would be it's best to be doing it when patient is fasting for at least five or six hours because despite that it is not given to them at an anesthetic dose but still because you feel kind of relaxed we don't want you to have any trouble with your like nausea and gastrointestinal issues so fasting for five or six hours pretty much eliminates that mm-hmm. um, concern uh, you can come, like with street clothes, you don't have to change, and it's an outpatient procedure. As I mentioned, takes roughly about between 50, maximum of 60 minutes. You will be observed at the conclusion uh, and termination of the infusion for about almost 30 minutes to make sure you're mm-hmm. not having any issues, everything's stable before you are allowed to go home. You will not be, it's not a good idea to drive at all because, again, as it is an anesthetic, and despite that, you may think you're fully awake, and there is no absolute, absolutely no sedative, uh, residual or lingering side effects of it. But still, it's not safe to drive. Mm-hmm. You can resume driving and daily, um, you know, operating machinery or whatever you want to do the day after. And uh, during the infusion, uh, a nurse anesthetist will be uh, basically monitoring you continuously 
during the whole process, uh, all of the vital signs will be continuously monitored, including your electrocardiogram, your pulse oximetry that measures the level of oxygen, uh, the respiration is monitored, and your blood pressure is monitored. So uh, if there is any trends of if this medication is impacting anything, we will see it way before uh, anything unusual happens. Mm -hmm. And as I said, usually there is absolutely no nothing that would be of concern during these types of infusion at sub-anesthetic concentration over a long period of time, meaning about 50 minutes. Usually you just sit there, uh, you feel really good and relaxed while this is being done. Once it's finished, um, of course, in the beginning, an IV will be started because this mm -hmm. is an intravenous sedative. Uh, it's a very, very small gauge IV. So it's not like you're going to have a major surgery that you need a large bore IV catheter placed. Uh, this is a very small IV that will be placed and it will be discontinued once the infusion is finished before you go home. Uh, and it's best if someone is with you, uh, like a family member, to take you home. That's the best uh, mm -hmm. advice I can give. Yeah, I think it was good for you. Know, you both clarified a bit about what to expect and that people know that you guys take this very seriously, making sure people are the right candidates for this treatment to make sure from a psychological, psychiatric perspective, they're okay and they're the right candidate. But also medically, Dr. Tamarazo, you explain all the issues that people might have that we, you want to screen for and that also when people are getting the infusion, it's not that they're just left in the room to, to figure it out. They're really being monitored to make sure they're okay. The expectation is that nothing will go wrong, but because it's, you know there is an infusion, you always want to just make sure people are doing all right. So people should be, feel confident that they're going to be monitored and in good hands and taken care of, of course. throughout the process, um, which hopefully might alleviate some anxiety people have of coming in and, and getting an infusion, because maybe some people have never done an infusion before, so they don't know what to expect or you know is it something that that'll feel now, okay if i may say a few words sure. unfortunately this this infusion um has been performed by some non-anesthesia trained mm -hmm. personnel mm -hmm. this is where i i have really to draw the line this is ultimately an anesthetic and despite that it is it is extremely safe and the dose is extremely small i strongly recommend for everyone who wants to do it and I'm sure there are other centers and areas that they perform this, mm -hmm. make sure the one who is giving it to you is a trained physician or a nurse anesthetist and make sure that it is done in a controlled environment with all those vital signs being monitored because these are required by the American Society of Anesthesiologists mm -hmm. as anytime you're exposed to an anesthetic or a sedative, even if it is really not sedating you, still all the standards of care uh, demand and dictate that you, they have to follow the guidelines and recommendations of the American Society of Anesthesiologists. So it has to be pretty much be delivered either by an anesthesiologist or a nurse anesthetist. Unfortunately, there are places that it is done by non-anesthesia trained personnel. Mm -hmm. So that's my word of caution. Yeah, I think it's a very good point uh, to bring up. It, it reminds you of how lots of uh, the majority, I forgot what the percentage, like 70-80% of psychiatric medications are prescribed by non Psychiatrists, unfortunately, with ketamine, as right. you're mentioning, very often it's being performed by non-anesthesiologists as uh, being in the part of the procedure. And you are the medical director of Halcyon. Yes. And so I know you take that role very seriously in making sure all the protocols are met to make sure that the patients are in good hands, that 
no one is getting the treatment that shouldn't and everyone who's getting it is um, not under any kind of risk that they need to be very worried about. Exactly. And I think that's a good point to, to bring up that it is a new treatment and because of that, lots of people might want to get into it and so right. clinics might open where they might not be taking all of the precautions. And so this is not to scare people or to make them paranoid, but to be aware that you want to just make sure that where you're going, it is good for there to be definitely an anesthesiologist who's the one who's involved with administering, but also they need to get clearance from a, a psychologist or preferably a psychiatrist to make sure that from the psychological psychiatric side, they are uh, okay. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. Sure. You know, and you we uh, touched on this before, Dr. Safe mentioned about the nasal spray and bioavailability. Maybe you can yes. explain a little bit to people why you prefer the IV route and why that seems to be supported by the research. Any, any medication, great question, any medication has um, a lot of medications have different routes of administration. Mm -hmm. And based on how it is given to you, then the amount that will be absorbed into your circulation may vary. So there are, as we know, you can take a pill as a medication. It can be intramuscular or intravenous injections. It can be placed under your tongue, or it could be a nasal spray, or it can be rectally placed like suppositories, right? So each compartment of our body absorbs the medication differently. Via the oral or sublingual route, the absor absorption is about 20 to 30%, which means about almost 30% of that medication may get into your bloodstream, which mm -hmm. ultimately will take that medication to the brain, which will exert its beneficial effect. Uh, rectal route is almost also the same, about 25 to 35%. Nasal route is just slightly higher, but it ranges between 8% to 50%, but they usually average it at about 35 to 40%. So only 40% of that may get to the brain. Plus there are other variables such as, for instance, if you have a little bit of cold or you have nasal septal deviation, or if you have chronic sinus conditions, and the nasal mucosa, if it is uh, thicker because you're, you have allergies, for instance, then there is less absorption. So there is a lot of things that makes the absorption uh, vary in, in, this, in, this, in this setting. Uh, but the intramuscular route, which gives us about 90 to 95% amount of the medication into our bloodstream, and ultimately intravenous route is almost 100%, all of it gets to the bloodstream. So that's why if you really want a medication to work, mm -hmm. you really go with the intravenous route. That makes, I mean, well, it makes as much sense as it can to be as a non-medical professional, but I think that's important for people to be aware. As Dr. Safe mentioned, um, there is a nasal spray and there's these other routes that are being used, but really the efficacy or really the accuracy of how much of you're putting this chemical into the body is not very clear. And that's so important because as you mentioned, this is a medication that as, is used as an anesthetic but also the dosage is so much lower that we want to make sure that what's getting into the bloodstream or getting introduced into the body is really getting to the brain to know it's going to have the, the positive impact. Yeah, and also want. I want I want the listeners to be aware that the nasal spray, you have to do this at the physician's office. You right. can't just take that home and use it yourself. Mm -hmm. So you have to be at the physician's office and you have to be monitored and you have to be there for about two hours. Yeah. And it usually takes longer. I mean, the research has shown it might respond in about two to four weeks, which we're looking at one uh, one hour to one day. So I just want to make sure people mm -hmm. are aware of the timeline of when you're going to respond. That's important. And then just going on about how the patient, what they should expect at the clinic, um, it's not like a setting of going to do operation. You're not lying on a bed. It's more like mm -hmm. a reclining chair 
So it's it's and it's more like a Zen like, very peaceful. And you could bring your favorite person and you mm-hmm. could bring your own blanket. Some people are you know, have this a tendency to bring their comfort, um, you know, comfortable materials, mm-hmm. pillows. And uh, and you, it, it's very, you know, it's it's a very, as the, the doctor said, it's a small needle. It's not like per se a big needle where people have this fear of like ivy line. Mm-hmm. It's the, one of the smallest needle that's used and, uh, and it's very peaceful. And some people actually, they, in the maintenance f- uh, phase, they actually start to actually feel like it gives them a lot of comfort and they know what to expect mm-hmm. so it might be the first time a little bit you know uneasy or anxiety provoking but yeah. after a while it, it, the, the patients are aware of what the benefit of it and they feel much better and they're more comfortable with the whole procedure yes. actually you mentioned the first time and maybe dr timoraz you can talk a bit about what people should expect as far as treatment because i as far as i know it's not that people come just one time usually it's part of a series of treatments that uh, people can be put on type of like a schedule and maybe you could tell us a bit about that Yes, thank you. So uh, as we talked about it earlier, studies have shown that if you get just one infusion, you may have the beneficial effects for days to um, sometimes two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. But the best results are when you have exposed the brain and the central nervous system repeatedly over a course of certain period of time to this medication. Uh, Usually our protocol calls for about two, maybe three infusions per week for up to four to six total number of infusions. Uh, some patients, if they respond drastically, like great, then they may not need to go through the whole you know, protocol as it is, as it is scheduled. Uh, then once we stop this, um, um, finish this first phase of the protocol, then comes the maintenance phase of mm-hmm. ketamine infusion. Because as we said, this is a medication that works and looks like it works greatly, uh, but it, you have to have maintenance infusions to keep the beneficial effects going mm-hmm. and to keep that repair process that we initiated continue. And uh, that, again, is variable. it varies between patients, but it could be once a month or once every other month. It's hard to give a like an exact um, uh, idea, but it would be, it needs to be repeated usually, uh, but much, much less frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the patients, again, uh, will go through it, as just Dr. Safe mentioned. It is a very relaxed environment. Uh, you're on a recliner. You can you know, watch a movie on your phone or read a book. And when it is finished rapidly after the infusion is finished, uh, all that slight sedative um, experience you've had starts wearing off. What you're left with usually is a very elated and a very positive type change that you most people again i have to emphasize this is not like a silver bullet or a miracle suddenly Mm -hmm. but it's very close to almost a miracle drug Uh, any like any other medication medicine nothing is 100 percent. some people may really not respond but majority they do yeah i think that's very important to to mention that i think uh, even for me, as in all of my schooling, and even what you always would hear is that the best treatment for depression is medication and therapy together, right. both. Yes. And so, even with this, this is a in a way a different type of medication, different mechanisms of action, all those things. But still, my thought would be that it doesn't mean that people should discontinue therapy or that they shouldn't do therapy also, and that this is like you said, a magic bullet that just takes away their depression and for the rest of their life they don't have to do anything. But it could definitely help them a lot, especially when they're severely depressed and have not responded to other treatments. And as Dr. Safe alluded to earlier, 
might allow for them to then really get more benefits out of psychotherapy because of being in a different state of mind, uh, maybe physically. Uh, you know. No, and also the changes in their brain. Right. It could allow them to take in what the therapist is saying and apply it. Yeah. I'm exactly. sure you've done CBT and you see sometimes the patients come back without doing their homework and you're frustrated. You're well, like, why are you not doing right. it? Yeah, I mean, people have to be ready for it. It's <laughs> exactly. hard work. It's, uh, you know, you have to be ready to do that hard work in psychotherapy and this can definitely facilitate that. And uh, Dr. Tamaraz, you mentioned that there is at the beginning more, not set, but what patients can expect as far as number of treatments, but then it really does get tailored to the patient based exactly. on their needs, yes. based on how they're doing. So it's not just one set protocol for everyone, really. Exactly. You're looking at the individual patient and what their and, needs are. And uh, Dr. Saif made uh, reference to um, that we, this is not just pure and simple, the answer to depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. We are just, just like if I have a patient suffering from herniated disc and I have taken care of them, but then I refer them to physical therapy, and physical therapy aug augments, you know, a lot of things that I've done, and then they send right. them back. So we are really trying to be a multidisciplinary approach. We are just another, as I said, tool in the toolbox to help our uh, psych psychiatry uh, colleagues and um, and help them with what now there seems to be another really promising medication, but that. Um, relationship between the patient and their physicians has to be maintained. Uh, all we're doing is maybe we're providing the psychiatrists or psychologists with a, an improved uh, mood for their patient uh, so they can continue doing what they're doing. So mm -hmm. it's a truly a give and take um, relationship. Yeah, it's a great point because I think uh, the patients have to be aware they can go back to the treating physician that mm -hmm. they trust because we know that the therapeutic relationship is right. extremely important mm -hmm. in treatment of the patients. Absolutely. I mean, that itself plays a huge part. Yeah, and, and a lot of the research in psychotherapy, they find that what's most beneficial is the relationship between therapists and clients. So absolutely, we don't, again, want to say that this ketamine treatment replaces other no. types of treatment or if something is working for you that you have to now do this. But, you know, already I know you guys did the show Friday with on, with my father. And the response that some people gave, even if they weren't in the Los Angeles area, so they couldn't come here, just the fact that there might be a new promising treatment that might help them or a loved one who's been severely depressed for years sometimes um, is really exciting for a lot of people and gives them some hope. And again, it's not that this is going to be helpful for everyone, but for many people it can be. And that's why we wanted to spread that word that people know that there is a treatment for depression that they might not have heard of that might be helpful to them or their loved ones and they right. can look more into it. Um, Dr. Tamarazi and Dr. Safe did a great job of expressing a lot of the research and how it can help people. Um, but people can keep doing their own research and I hope people will look into it. There are clinics around the world, but especially here in Los Angeles, there is, and you guys are part of a clinic here in, in Beverly Hills. And as I mentioned, people can call in. That number is 800-301-8339. And the name of the clinic is Halcyon. And I know you guys are excited about uh, what you guys can do in helping people who've been suffering for, for years with that. And you know, something I always recognize when I see a client come into my office is that because of the stigma that we have with mental illness, very often they've been suffering for years before they come seek treatment. And we know, unfortunately, right. that is the case with, with depression and, and other mental illnesses. So I know people listening out there 
they might be suffering for quite some time and not sure what they can do. Absolutely. And I'm very grateful to you guys to coming on it's and been, it's been a pleasure and helping yeah, thank you educate the public because as I mentioned, part of what I want to do on this show is to have people just to talk about these things. Even if someone now talks about their depression, that would be one step. But also look into other treatments that, that they can have um, to, to really help them and benefit them in, in doing better. So thank you both for for joining me. Thank, thank you, you for, for having the, us. Yeah, and thank you for, you for the, the listeners. Yes, thank, thank you to the listeners out there who got to hear. Hopefully you learned a bit. I know I learned a lot about uh, depression treatments in general, but especially ketamine, which is this very exciting new way to treat depression. Or I shouldn't say new because it's been around, but it might be new to many of us who haven't heard it before. And I want to just reintroduce my guests as we say goodbye. But Dr. Ati Amanda Saif is a psychiatrist who is working at Halcyon and also Dr. Benjamin Tamorazi, who is a um, clinical instructor of surgery at University of Illinois, a fellow of the American Headache Society and triple board certified in anesthesiology, headache medicine, and pain medicine. Um, I'm glad he even found the time to see us with everything he does. And I know how busy he is, but I know he's very dedicated to thank you. helping yeah. people. It's in been a pleasure. Again. Thank you. So thank you to all of you for joining me today. And thank you to Ghazala here in the studio, who's been, as always, uh, helping me. Uh, with the show. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful day.